The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. The word of God speaks to us. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do it, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word to us. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here, and if we haven't met, it might be because I'm I'm still kind of new. I'd love to meet you if we haven't. And uh, I'd also love to pray and ask God to speak to us. Would you do that with me? So, Father, I was struck by lots of things as we sang and prayed together. I was struck by how generous and loving you are, how constant you are and how stable you are. I was also struck by how frail I am and how my frailty and our frailty doesn't cause you to run away from us, but actually you run toward us. Thanks for being loving and merciful and beautiful. Thanks for showing yourself to us. Thanks for giving us your word. Thanks for not hiding. So I ask now that you would, in the same way that you lined up our voices to sing, God, would you line up our hearts to hear you and respond to you? God, as we hear Paul um, line out why he did what he did, and how he did what he did, I ask that you would captivate our imaginations with your glory so that we would live our lives to make much of you just like Paul did. I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, so 20 years ago, I worked at Starbucks in the western suburbs of Chicago. Um, I can tell you the store number if you've ever been to Starbucks shift supervisor and made a deposit, or I could tell you my partner number if you wanted to go that route, but that's not the point this morning. I, I, I had uh, a job like many of you have had in a coffee shop, and it was candidly one of the most fun jobs I've ever had in my life, and it was, I think, almost certainly the most fun boss I've ever had in my life. My boss was LaDonna Thomas, and in addition to being kind and calm and clear and compassionate. She was firm and she was fun. And I think the thing that drove LaDonna more than anything else was she wanted people to understand why she was doing what she was doing all the time or why she was not doing what she was not doing, or why she was saying what she was saying, or thinking what she was thinking. She always wanted to sit us down and explain to us the whys behind something. W-H-Y-S, not W-I-S-E. 
It, it, was, it was important for her that whether you were one of her employees or a customer, she always wanted you to understand the whys behind something. She wanted you to understand her motivations. She wanted you to understand the means by which or the system by which she was orienting and arranging her decision-making process. I call it to this day the LaDonna principle. My, my kids know if I say, hey, I want to give you the whys behind something, they know that LaDonna is about to speak in our home. And I bring that up because Paul is channeling the spirit of LaDonna at this point in 1 Corinthians 9. He, he gathers the Corinthians together and says effectively, hey, I want you to understand the whys behind what I'm doing. And, and it's amazing to me because the Corinthians, if you haven't been with us or if you have been with us and have forgotten, the Corinthians were obsessed with their rights, always obsessed with their rights. Well, it's my right to do this. It's my right to do this. And I have the freedom to do this. And in chapter 8, Paul says, okay, let me concede your rights for you. Let me, let me, let's just grant for the sake of conversation that all these freedoms you believe to be yours in Jesus are yours. And then Paul does this crazy thing. He says, what if, if, if instead of standing on your rights, you laid them down for the sake of love? What if instead of demanding that other people bend and capitulate to your rights and your freedoms, in love, you bent and capitulated toward them? What if out of a love for God and love for other people, you surrendered your rights? That's chapter eight of this letter. And then what's bananas is in the first half of chapter nine, Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, hey, lest you think that I'm asking you to do something that I'm unwilling to do, Paul says, I am laying down my rights for you. Paul says, it would make sense for me to be able to ask for financial support from you, given my role, given the task I have in your life, given how zealous you are to pay other people to be your life coaches and teachers. But I have, out of love, laid down my rights. And what Paul does in, in verses 19 to 27 of our passage today is he explains why. He says, I want you to understand why I've laid down my rights. Why he does every single thing he does. And it's, it's tempting to, in reading this passage, to get obsessed with and caught up in how Paul did what he did, how Paul lived his life as a missionary. He's like, man, I laid down my rights here. To these people, I became like this. To this, I became like this. To this, I became like this. And it's easy for us to get wrapped up in the mechanics of how Paul did what he did and to miss the why of what he did. And, and I would submit to you this morning, if you understand the why of what drove Paul in the way he related to every human being, it will liberate you in your relationships to other human beings in the name of Jesus to practice what Paul practiced, even if your life looks different from his. So what I want us to do today is I want us to move through this passage and I wanna just highlight three things for you. I wanna highlight firstly, Paul's passion. Or, or if I'm using LaDonna's language, I wanna give you the whys behind what Paul did. Secondly, I want us to talk about Paul's practice or the how of how Paul lived his life as a missionary. And then finally, I want us to talk about our response, Paul's passion, Paul's practice, our response. Or if you want to keep the LaDonna parentheses going on, the so what for frontline. 
So I, I want us to understand why Paul oriented his life the way he did. Because then in any situation, you could ask, hey, how could I orient my life according to Paul's values? And then your practices could get sorted out as situations demanded. But this gives a word for everyone in this room. And I mean that whether you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years or whether you're trying to dip your toe in the waters of Christianity even find out what it would look like for you to follow Jesus. Because Paul's describing his life as an apostolic missionary. Paul is a pioneer going to places where Jesus had not been preached and actually laboring to plant gospel movements in those places. But this isn't just a word for how an apostolic pioneer orients his life. This is a word for how all of us should orient our life. Whether we hang drywall for a living or an accountant or a student or raising kids full time, whatever we do, Paul's why offers an answer for us. So look with me at verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And let's just hear Paul's passion. Paul says, For though I am free from all, radical statement, by the way. He's like, hey, I don't owe anybody anything. I'm not beholden to anybody. Nobody is setting standards or parameters for what I'm doing or how I'm living. And specifically in this context, Paul's like, hey, nobody's paying my bills. I'm not beholden to anybody. I am free from all, even though that's the case, Paul says. Nevertheless, I've made myself a servant to all. Like, man, that seems contradictory. Free from all, servant to all. Paul says, right, right. I'm under no obligation to anyone. But out of a deep driving passion in my life, to the degree that I'm able, I obligate myself to everyone. Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, so that, Paul says, so that I might win more of them. Win. I might win more of them. If you've got your own Bible, circle that word. You should write in your Bible all the time. It's liberating and it's a good mnemonic device and other things. But, but I want you to note, at least note, that word win in your Bible because Paul uses it five times in this passage. This is a verb that Paul uses, think about this, six times in everything he writes. The verb to win or to gain. Five of those occurrences happen in just a handful of verses right here. Read them with me if you've got your Bibles open. Paul says, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself being, though, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Win, 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 win. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like when I hear the word winning, I, I, I have bad connotations of that in my mind. 
It's like, ugh, do, as Christians, do we want to talk that way? I don't know if it's like vestiges or a hangover from Charlie Sheen's bad moment in the news when all he talked about was winning. I don't know if it's like cartoonish kind of embellishments of political figures talking about winning. There's just something that seems strange about it. But it's really important for us to take hold of what Paul's saying because he's not doing some cartoon embellishment of a zero-sum game. When Paul talks about winning people, he's not talking about him winning and them losing. He's talking about persuading someone to believe what he believes. He's talking about through inordinate amounts of effort, winning someone to the truth that he believes the universe is oriented around. This is a great thing for Paul. It's not about his personal reputation or acclaim. It's not about him saying, look at all the people that I've won. In fact, he makes it clear that this is God saving people through the word of the gospel. So Paul doesn't even think he's the winner. He thinks God is the winner. But for him, Paul's like, I do this that I might win these people, that I might win these people, that I might win these people. Because what he wants ultimately, verse 23, is that I might share with other people in the blessings of the gospel. Now think about that for just a minute. Because Paul's saying, hey, I live my life willing to sacrifice all my preferences. I'm willing to lay down all my preferences so that some might trust Jesus and be one to the heart of God. And then I really become the winner because I get to share in the blessings of heaven with that person forever. Like, do you understand what's motivating him? Paul says, I want to win. I want to win. And if, if, we, if we get down into the depths of what he's saying, look at verse 22 and 23. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul realizes that all people won't be saved. He realizes that God saves whom he wills. And if you're in this room this morning and you've experienced the saving work of God, you know that's because of God's grace, not because of your intellect, your performance, your pedigree, your family, anything else. What Paul's saying is like, I will lay down whatever I can so that by all means, some might be saved. Now, if we want to really understand the heart of Paul, the passion of Paul, the motivating why of Paul, we have to answer the question, saved from what? Saved from what? I, I do all this stuff so that some might be saved. Saved from what? And if you want to turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us what he's, he's laboring so diligently to see people saved from. I'm going to read verses 6 to 9 of Romans chapter 5. Paul says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. The logic here of the generosity of God is astonishing. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, here's the part I want you to note, much more shall we be saved by him. What are we saved from, Paul? The wrath of God. Paul says what we're saved from is the wrath of God. John the Baptist uses this same kind of language in John's gospel. Look at John chapter 3 with me. 
This is John chapter three, verse 36. Man, what I would have given to be there for this sermon. It's kind of an important one. That's the for God to love the world one. We hear at the end, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, I love how belief and obedience are linked there. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, now we're getting into the heart of what Paul's orienting passion was. The, the, the reality around which Paul organized his life was laboring to preach the saving work of Jesus Christ so that human beings could be delivered from the wrath of God. That, that's how Paul oriented the entirety of God's work in Jesus, deliverance from the wrath of God. The love of God for the sake of unlovable people for, so, so that we could know the grace of God, the mercy of God, and not have to experience the wrath of God. It's, it's an amazing proclamation. And Paul says, I've oriented my entire life around that. Every, everything I do, Paul says, that's the why behind it. Whether I eat bacon or don't eat bacon, that's why. Whether I take a salary from people I'm ministering among or don't, that's why. I want people to be saved from the wrath of God. I mean, like, real question for you. Like, how often do you, as you think about God's work in Jesus and the life of a Christian and what we're doing in the proclamation and manifestation of the gospel in a city, how often do you think about salvation? Like actually sharing with your friend, your cousin, your coworker, your neighbor, your classmate, hey, God sent his son into the world to deliver us from his wrath. How often do we think about the wrath of God? Like I, I realize that we're maybe disinclined to use saving language for the same reason we're disinclined to use the language of winning we don't want to sound like fundamentalists or imperialists or something else. But the fact of the matter is, that's what God has done in Jesus. That, that, that's the point. And I wonder if we don't find motivation to preach about the saving work of God in Christ or to share that with our friends or our coworkers or our neighbors or our family because we don't actually see that the fundamental problem humanity deals with is God's wrath. We see it as something smaller than the wrath of God. I, I, uh, I always think about this quote from Dick Kyes. He's a professor, and pastor, and author. He says this, I've always felt that one of the reasons that Jesus is so widely treated as nice but irrelevant, offering a salvation that nobody really needs, is that people don't really believe the problem exists that he came to solve. Like, let me ask you this question. How are we defining the problem in the world? Like, what is humanity's biggest problem? And how do we talk about the work of God on behalf of humanity's greatest problem? And I, I realize we have contemporary movements urging us to use language like flourishing and renewal 
and justice, all of which are great things embedded in the heart of God and in the work of God for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But there's something more significant than all those things in the work of God and the gospel for us, and that is delivering us lovingly, graciously, generously from the wrath of God. Like that is what Paul said drove him. If you, if you believe people are under the wrath of God apart from Jesus, what would you do? To what lengths would you go to tell them about the saving grace of Christ? And Paul says, I will go to as many lengths as possible. Which when you understand Paul's why or his passion, you start to get in line with his practice. Look in verse 22 and 23 of 1 Corinthians 9. He's gone through this whole thing, right? To Jews, I became as a Jew. To Gentiles, I became as a Gentile. To the weak, I became weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. You see, our goals always determine our practice. Our passion always determines our practice. And that's true even if you can't answer why you exist as a person. I met with a group of men this week, and I was shocked that half of them probably couldn't answer, why do you do what you do vocationally? They're like, uh, I don't really know. And if that's you this morning, I don't say that to shame you, but I say that to invite you to consider if you can't answer why you exist or why you do what you do, that might be an answer for why you feel like you're aimless or wandering or lonely or confused or moving back and forth from one thing to another. Your your passion or your why determines your practice. And Paul said, hey, by love, motivated by love for more people to trust Jesus, more people to be saved by the, from the wrath of God, I will surrender any preference I can. So Paul says, I became as a Jew, which makes me laugh because Paul was a Jew. <laughs> it's like, I became as an Oklahoman. Like, well, dude, you are, you are one. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. And what he means is, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, which Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And because he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, he knew that Jesus had fulfilled all the demands of the law. So he could say confidently in Romans chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Paul says, I know that. But to the Jews, I became as a Jew, meaning I'll eat kosher. I'll celebrate the feasts with you. I'll I'll participate in whatever vows and rituals and cleansings that you want me to so that in my laying down of my preferences, you can hear me speak as clearly as possible that Jesus is your only hope, not any of this. Paul says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. To those outside the law, which are Gentiles, he said, I became as one outside the law. Though, Paul says, "I'm, I'm not outside the law. He he understood that Jesus had fulfilled all the ordinances of the sacrificial and ceremonial system for the Jews. But he's like, I'm not like a moral relativist. I don't just say because of Jesus, I do whatever I want to do. Paul says, I'm submitted to the law of Christ. So Paul isn't saying, hey, if, if these people over here are terrorists, I'll become a terrorist for the sake of Jesus. No, he's like, no, I, I have legal constraints on me that are from God himself. But this is about 
language for Paul. This is about customs. This is about practices. And this is not about what behaviors of another group can he take up to be clear with him about Jesus. This is about what preferences of his own can he lay down. See, man, I love this. This is dear to me. This is precious to me. But I don't, I don't have to have any of these things. And I can lay these down so that more Gentiles could trust Jesus. And then he says, to the weak, I became like one who was weak. Which in the context of 1 Corinthians, this goes back to people that couldn't eat certain kinds of meat. He's like, hey, man, I'll be kosher. I'll not eat meat at all. If, if more people can come to faith in Jesus through me never eating meat, Paul says, great, I'm fine. I'm I'm compelled by love and I'm constrained by a desire to see people saved from the wrath of God. Let let me ask you this question. As you think about what preferences you could lay down personally so that others could hear more clearly the truth of what God offers them in Jesus, what could you personally lay down? Paul's not talking about values. There's something strange when Christians hear this passage that they're like, well, what are worldly God-dishonoring things that I can do that I really want to do anyway, but I'm just gonna do that in the name of mission to Jesus. They're like, I love beer. I love movies. I love concerts. And I'm not saying those are wicked and evil. We're just like, hey, this isn't about asking like, what are the things I wanna do already? And then I'll just call that Christian. But that's fine. I think Paul would say, cool, man, if you can do that by faith, do it in faith. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, like, what can you lay down? What preferences can you go, hey, for the sake of this person, I'm going to lay this down because I want to get inside their world and I want to speak to them as clearly as possible. I just wonder if we looked at our lives and looked at our neighbors and looked at those around us that we love but that do not love Jesus, what could we lay down? for the sake of them hearing the good news that in Jesus we can know the love of God and be delivered from the wrath of God forever. Like what what would love give birth to in your life? And, And I just think like from soup to nuts, right? Like is your neighbor into politics of the ilk that offend you, whether right or left? I don't even care. Could you lay down your political taste buds for the sake of getting to know your neighbor, getting to know their passions, their burdens, what they think is the answer to the problems in the world so that more clearly than ever, you could tell them that the problem in the world is the wrath of God and the sin of man and God alone has moved toward us to solve the problems in the world. Where could you lay down your political taste buds so that Christ could be proclaimed and people could be one to Jesus? Where could you lay down cultural elements that you think, well, I mean, I'm, I'm prim and proper, I hold this, or like, I'm, I don't, I'm not into that thing. Where, where could you lay down preferences for the sake of preaching Jesus to other people? I don't know if that's like well, you, you think you're above NASCAR or you think people that aren't into NASCAR are beneath you, whichever way that works. Like, how can I lay down those taste buds to get into that world so I can preach the gospel there? I have a dear friend that went to Mexico years ago as a missionary and he was there for over a decade and he went with like college level instructor Spanish under his belt when he went. 
And, and I remember him crying to me one day on the phone. And he said, dude, I can speak Spanish fine. He was like, I can even speak slang fine. That's not my problem. He said, my problem is I speak Spanish like a white man speaks Spanish. He's like, I want to learn nonverbals. I want to learn all these other things so that I can lay down elements that aren't critical to my values as a missionary of Jesus so that when people hear me talk more clearly than ever, they hear Jesus proclaimed to them with not a single thing to distract them. And I love to watch that guy 10 years later. You're like, you listen to him talk, you watch him talk, you watch him talk with other people, and you're like, oh, hey, this ultra-white kid from Chicago seems Mexican. He's like, that, that's what I want to lay down. I want to lay down all my Chicago-ness, which if you know Chicagoans, they care. He's <laughs> like, I want to lay down my Chicago-ness so that more might hear. What is the thing you could lay down? So I just want to close by asking us like, hey, what are our opportunities to hear Paul's driving passion, to make sense out of Paul's practice with that, and then to make practical applications in our own life? What could you do? What can you sacrifice? What can you take up? And again, I'm talking about preferences, not values. Because there's a strange thing for Christians where we want to lay down distinctives and call that being missionary and faithful. But actually, God calls us to be faithful to the fullness of who he is so that people could more clearly see the distinctives of those who follow Jesus, not less clearly. And, and I don't know if you noticed, but Paul didn't say that his, his driving why was to be liked by people or affirmed by people or called cool by people. I, I took um, perspectives on the world Christian movement several years ago, which, man, if you haven't taken that class, can we find a way to get more frontline people in that class? It changed my life. Um, but as I sat in one of my perspectives courses, I remember a guy said this to me, and I think I have to disagree with it according to God's word. He said, you haven't shared the gospel with someone until they actually hear good news, which I agree with that point fully. He's like, if someone hasn't heard good news, you haven't shared the gospel. But then he pushed it another line and said, and if they don't see you as a good person, I'm like, well, there are instances where we share the gospel and people hear with absolute clarity the good news of the gospel. And because God hasn't yet granted them salvation, they see us as a terrible person, a myopic person, a condemning person, a judgmental person. I don't think that it's on us to, to determine how other people see us. I think we need to walk according to love, walk in faithfulness and clarity and ask, what can we lay down to give clearer relief to the glory of all that God is for us in Jesus. And I, I just want to ask you, what could you do? So I, I have some questions I'd just love to like put in your hearts and put in your minds. How can we go further than we've ever gone before to be clear about Jesus and how he delivers us from the wrath of God? Where are things that you hold on to in your life that in conversations with friends, in relationships with coworkers or family, you're like, actually, man, if I laid down these preferences, they could more clearly understand the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. Where, where are places where in your life you could go further than you have now? You could lay more down and sacrifice more and in places where you thought, man, I'm never gonna be like that person. It's like, well, you don't have to lay down your distinctives as a Christian to be like that person. What if you could be like that person 
for the sake of them hearing about the glorious deliverance from the wrath of God. Then how can you test that? How can you test how you're doing? Because I, I don't think um, God asks anything from us but faithfulness to him. Do we trust him? Can we lean on his grace? Can we depend on his spirit? And can we walk in faithfulness? And how can you determine faithfulness to this Pauline passion and Pauline practice? Here's my questions for you. Are you renouncing more and more rights for the sake of the gospel? Or are you refusing to renounce rights for the sake of the gospel? Are you calling other people in your life immature when what you're evidencing is your own immaturity by an unwillingness to go, you know what? In eternity, that doesn't matter. I can let it go. I can let it go. I had a pastor in my life that super influential and when he would regularly say to us, strong people bend, weak people break. Like, where can you bend for the sake of more people hearing with more clarity the truth of all that God is for them in Jesus? Are you laying down legitimate rights or are you laying down necessary distinctives? Because there are some of us that Let's say motivated by a heart for more people to trust Jesus. You're like, man, I want to lay this down. You're like, what you're laying down is a distinctive of what it means to follow Jesus. You can't do that. You need to take that back up. Are, are you laying down legitimate rights or are you laying down necessary distinctives? And this is a really important question. Are the people that you love becoming more spiritually minded or are you becoming more worldly minded? That's how we can know as missionaries, are we getting converted? Or are we doing work to be clear? Which so often, motivated by love for Jesus' name and a desire for other people to trust him and walk with him, we sometimes get converted to the culture instead of clearly articulating what it means to walk with Jesus. It's like a trope in cop movies, right? The guy goes undercover to catch the bad guys and then becomes a bad guy. And hey, for the record, I'm not saying like unbelievers are bad guys any more than I'm a bad guy who's delivered by the grace of God. All of us are bad guys. That's the message of the scriptures. There's one good guy that's ever lived in human history and we killed him. He died for the sins of the world so that bad people could be delivered from the wrath of God. Are, are, are we becoming more, are, are people we love becoming more spiritually minded or are you becoming more worldly minded? And the way you can determine if you're becoming more worldly minded is like, what do you do when you reach barriers or authority issues? What do you do when you come up against the word of God? I, I love in Genesis 1 to 3, we see like spiritual mindedness is me saying, God's given me everything I need. He told me not to eat from that tree, but he's provided me everything I need. Even if I don't understand why he wants me to not eat from that tree, I trust him. That's spiritual mindedness. Worldly mindedness is, did God really say that? God's holding out on you. Why are you letting God cheat you like that? that, that that's worldly mindedness versus spiritual mindedness. I got one more question for you, I think. I got two. No, I just have one. I'll just do one. You guys want two? You want three? I'm being selective here. I'm laying down preferences to get through all my notes for the sake of your lunch. I love Jesus. Hey, here's a, here's a real one. Are people being one to Jesus around us? Or another way you could say is like, what, what, are, what are those of you that walk with people that don't know Jesus? What are your unbelieving friends say about you? 
Which would be fascinating if you brought them here with you to church today. Or they come to your group or they hang out with you and your friends. Like, ask them, hey, what do, you, what do you think about our commitments to Jesus? How does that make sense to you? What do you see about the way we're interacting with you? That'd be an amazing test. It'd also be an amazing opportunity to share the gospel. Hey, the reason why we need to be clear, the reason why we need to be clear, the reason why we need to do everything we can to track with Paul's passion and walk in Paul's practice is people apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus are imprisoned forever under their sin and the wrath of God. That is not good news. And we need to be as clear as possible so that as many can hear as clearly as possible so that some might be saved. Because in the moment we live in, when God is thrown out the door, justice, like any means of actually accomplishing justice is thrown out the door. Righteousness is thrown out the door. Then everything becomes theater and performance. I don't know how many of you are Samuel James fans, but I read Samuel James' newsletter this week and it blew my mind. Listen to what he says. This is why we need to be clear. This is why we need to be clear. This is why we need to lay down preferences and be clear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Samuel James says this, beyond the Christian gospel lies just endless performance. In the absence of a just God, justice must be performed. And we do it online, right? We don't actually labor for it in real life. We just perform it online. In the absence of a creator, identity must be performed. Instead of receiving a purpose and an identity, I have to create one and buy stuff to make one. In the absence of a savior, atonement must be performed. And my gosh, are Westerners more interested in atonement than ever before, but have no category for a savior at all. Everyone has to pay. There's no view in which someone could pay for us. In the absence of a savior, atonement must be performed. In the absence of a father, intimacy must be performed. Call our age of mirrors the burnout age because it's true. What comes next? And the answer is broken, weak people saved by the grace of God who will stand up and walk in his grace by his spirit and labor to tell people as clearly as possible what the weight and wages of their sin is and where we find freedom under the grace of Jesus. Sidestepping idolatry with people will not save them. And sidestepping or glossing over the realities of sin and judgment will not save them. And Paul's saying throughout this thing like, hey, I'm doing this for myself as well because I don't want to be the guy that preaches this to other people and then misses out for himself. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, more than people being clear about how they speak about your grace, I want them to be clear from your word and from your heart what you say about your grace. Would you open eyes if you haven't to this point and open hearts and open ears if you haven't to this point and grant faith in us so that we could hear the bad news of who we are apart from Jesus and the astonishingly, scandalously good news of what's offered to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
God, would you orient all of our passions around, around Jesus. And then help us to live in accordance with that passion with everyone we relate to. I pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.